Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. For over 200 years, liberal democratic capitalism has consistently made the world a much better place. Starting in Europe and the United States, the Industrial Revolution began lifting people out of poverty at a rate never seen before or imagined. And in the past 40 years, these same forces began lifting people in Africa and Asia out of extreme poverty as well. So aside from the short-term damage of the pandemic, the world continues to become a much better place year after year. So why are so many people afraid of the future and nostalgic about the past rather than optimistic about what's to come? I'm delighted to discuss that question today with Ronald Bailey. Ron is a science correspondent for Reason Magazine and Reason.com. He's also the co-author, along with Marion Tupi, of the new book, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, and many others you will find interesting. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me on. I think this may be seen as a contrarian book, given how pessimistic so many people seem to be right now. So why aren't people as optimistic as you? Why don't they understand that the world is not terrible and has actually gotten a lot better? Well, they... Basically, there are three different reasons for why, or psychological glitches, if you will, why, why people are based, have this bias, I would say, against reality and in favor of pessimism. What I'd like to say is I don't think of uh, our book at all, as being at all contrarian. It's based on uh, very well-known, uncontroversial science and economics. They're, they're not, we, we're not trying to trick anybody with any strange new statistics. This is stuff that anybody could look up, but they don't. And so what we're trying to do is to put it in a package so that everybody would have it available at their fingertips so that they could get a, a real view of the state of the world the way it is. The way I like to put it is you can't fix the world if you don't know how it actually is, and you can't promote progress unless you know how the state of the world actually stands. And so the problem is, is that we have, a, a you know, Three different kind of biases, if you will, uh, along the lines of pessimism. Once an anthropologist guy explained it to me is, you know, the the problem is, is that we're the descendants of the people back in evolutionary times when they were wandering around the plains of Africa and they heard a rustle in the bushes. And the guy said, you know, that's just the wind. And it turned out to be a lion. He was he was uh, no longer an ancestor. So the people who, whenever they heard the wind rustle, said, oh, that could be a lion and ran away. They are, in fact, our progenitors. And that, so we have a, a, an evolutionary tendency to worry more about how things could go wrong than, uh, than think about how well they can go. Uh, another problem is that progress masks itself over time. What happens is, is all these things that were terrible problems two or three generations in the past, you know, sanitation, infectious diseases, um, uh, warfare even, uh, as, as they become less and less problems, they just go into the background and we forget about those and we only see the problems that are in front of us now and we cannot remember how to compare the magnitude of the problems, the lesser magnitude of the problems we currently face with the huge problems our ancestors did. So progress is masking itself. We, we just forget all the time. 
uh, these are the kinds of things that, that you know, uh, again, we're trying to overcome with this book by showing people the actual state of the world. Uh, do you think we've grown, let's just speak um, maybe in the United States, do you think we've grown more pessimistic over time? Or perhaps our pessimism has stayed the same, but if things are getting better, then maybe, I don't know, our relative pessimism has increased? Or is or as do you think people are fairly steady versus, I don't know, back in the 60s or something? Well, actually, uh, let's divide the two things. Yes, I, there's pretty good data, uh, polling data that suggests that Americans have become more pessimistic over time. There are reasons for that which we could discuss. But, but interestingly enough, if you look at what we have in the book here as well, uh, happiness data. If you ask people, are they getting happier over time? You find, again, polling data and, and data uh, from other sources shows that actually in America and across the world, uh, people have been getting relatively happier over the last few decades or so. In other words, people look out at the world and go, oh my goodness, this is a real problem. There are a lot of problems out there. But when they think about and reflect on their own lives for the most part, it turns out that people are becoming happier over time. So there is that kind of mismatch. Again, something that we want to address with the book is try to explain to you, all right, you're happy, we can show that, but you should also be a lot less pessimistic. Things are a lot better than you think they are. Um, it's, it's sort of the, you know, Congress is full of swindlers and thieves, but my local congressman, he's out there fighting for me. That's correct. That's correct. And of course, if you go back and read any newspaper over the last 200 years, Congress has always been filled with swindlers and thieves. <laughs> uh, all right, let, let's uh, let's let's go through some of the uh, at least the bigger uh, of, the, of the big trends. And uh, I'll uh, I'll try to give you the I'll, I'll try to be the contrarian and I'll try to give you the contrarian, maybe wise guy response about maybe why they're not so good. Uh, one of which uh, uh, is maybe well known to some of our uh, listeners. The, uh, the great enrichment, how over the last 200 years, uh, the global economy has grown. We are far more well off than we were back in 1800 by many, many, many sort of uh, multiples. Um, two, questions, two questions on that. I have found out when I have talked about that data, some people are just, they're, they're just, they're kind of skeptical. They just don't, <laughs> they just don't, they just don't think it's actually that much that, that much better uh I don't, I don't know if you've run into that uh but i find it a little uh, astonishing they say oh maybe we have better gadgets but that's you know but maybe in all other ways life is too hurried or there's more pollution or something they just they just kind of astonished by that i i i'm i once you see the data in front of you, it's really hard not to be astonished on the other hand of, of how well off human humanity has become over time if you think about it, the average per capita income on planet Earth, and this is in real dollars, the stuff, the dollars you have in your pocket right now, uh, was about $460 a person. And that was only 200 years ago. And now it, for the entire planet, this includes every poor person on the planet is, as an average. And of course, there are still places that are desperately poor, but, but there's good news about them as well. That, that has grown to an average of almost $15,000 per person. That's a huge increase in human welfare in terms of the purchasing power of stuff that you can get. And of course, there are the other way to look at this is, is think about uh, people living in the United States in 1900, right? Uh, the average life expectancy, by the way, then was about 45, 46 years. 
in, uh, in the United States at that time. And, and now it's almost 80 years for, uh, in the United States. But think about what Rockefeller couldn't buy at the time. He couldn't have a cell phone. He had no computers. He couldn't get antibiotics. He couldn't have heart surgery. Uh, he, he couldn't travel uh, to Europe uh, in less than six hours. I mean, no amount of money, the richest man in the world could purchase the things that we have. Air conditioning, for example, reliable refrigeration, electricity. I mean, here's the richest man in the world living in a, in a way that, that, that some of the poorest people in New York would, would just be shocked by. And so that's how much we've improved. And again, this is progress is masking itself because we start, we start taking for granted things, uh, the, the, the good things that we have now. So I think, and, and the other sort of response I get when I talk about that great uh, enrichment um, is that even if people sort of accept, you know, the, you know, that, that level of improvement, they'll say, well, you know, that was based on, we got that way because we did bad things. We got that, we got richer because of slavery. We got that way because we exploited workers. We got that way because of colonization. So there's that, hey, that's great, but it's nothing to be proud of. Well, let's face it. Uh, there were uh, there were lots of injustices throughout all of human history. Uh, there's no question about that. And of course, most of the people uh, who were committing those in those days were only slightly richer than the poor people they were preying upon. Uh, and there's no there's no setting aside that. But the point is that colonization has gone away. Slavery has been abolished. Uh, there are certainly ways that we could make reparations for to, to people whose whose ancestors suffered from these things and still suffer from, uh, if you will, systemic problems uh, in that regard in the economy. But even so, those people are still uh, also better off than, than almost anybody would have been, in fact, anybody would have been uh, two centuries ago. I don't want to minimize how bad the past was. In fact, what we're trying to do with this book is to show how much better the, 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 the present is and how much better it's likely to become over the course of this century. Now, over the past 30 or 40 years, we've seen a big decline in global poverty as more developing countries have opened their economies and gotten wealthier. Again, when I write about this, people respond, that's come at just too high a price for American workers and communities. So it's good for China and India, but what did we get out of all this? Well, of course, that is an example of zero-sum thinking, that there's only so much uh, money or resources in the world in it, and some people, if, if some people get some, then the others have none. And that's just not what, what happens, is the human ingenuity spread across the globe and with the further and further ties of trade across the globe, we, we are able to benefit all of us from the developments in other countries. And that has been a huge part of the great enrichment is the spread, if you will, of free trade across the globe and competition across the globe. Now, of course, uh, as this happens, there will be losers temporarily when, uh, when industries shift one place or another, as, as they do. But overall, uh, and again, I can't, can't say that everybody is better off at all times because that is simply would be a miracle and that is not the way the world works. But on average, uh, because of free trade, because the, of the uh, spread of industry across, across the globe, Americans at home are living a lot better than they used to do so. In the book, you mentioned Paul Ehrlich and the eco-pessimist movement of the 1970s, which believed we were going to overpopulate the planet and run out of natural resources. There's a more recent version of this, 
a subset of the environmental movement believe economic growth needs to end in order to save the planet, whether that means economies don't grow or even that they degrow. So two questions. One, what do you make of that argument? And two, how mainstream is this sort of degrowth or steady state argument within the environmental movement? I, I, I don't believe that mainstream environmentalists are mostly believers in degrowth. I think most of them actually think that we can have both prosperity and a cleaner, richer environment over time. There is, as you identify, a, group, a small group of very fierce, very ideological degrowth, if you will, uh, uh, environmentalists, sort of like Paul Ehrlich, who have been trying to uh, argue that humanity is simply going to outgrow the, the, the world and we're going to use up all the resources. There'll be a population crash and we will destroy biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera, over time. But in fact, what, is, what we do to grow the economy is not use more stuff all the time. What we do is to use our ingenuity to, in fact, get more value, extract more value out of less and less stuff over time. Uh, as we demonstrate in the book is it, in the United States, for example, we've are, and in other advanced economies, uh, we are already dematerializing. That is, we're using less and less stuff to get more and more value, more, more of the stuff we want out of life, if you will. Think about how much was dematerialized into a cell phone. We get that as an example, for example. You know, you, you used to have to have a camera, you used to have, used to have a phone, you used to have, used to have a tape recorder, you, you, you know, on and on and on. Think of all the things that your phone has absorbed, uh, you know, a, a record player, whatever, a radio, a television, that is all now in your phone. That's an example of how we dematerialize over time. And that's just one example we can give you. So basically, we grow the economy by using our ingenuity by finding new recipes, if you will, to figure out how to make uh, more valuable things for ourselves. And in fact, humanity, we fully expect, will be withdrawing from nature over time. And in fact, uh, by the end of uh, this coming century, uh, most people will be living in cities, they'll be much wealthier, and a lot of the land that we currently use to extract food and other resources from will have reverted back to nature. What sort of advances do we need to have to make that happen? Or do, well, or do we, you know, are, are, there, are there key advances, key technologies that just certainly don't exist right now to have that kind of world in the year 2100? Well, we, the, what, yeah, well, obviously what happens is, what I prefer to think of it is a, is a, is, is a, a process, if you will, of, of, of progress. What we're doing, consider what could happen. Again, I'm not going to predict uh, exact technologies because uh, only an idiot would do that because who would have predicted the cell phone in 1970? Come on. The, but the fact is, one way you could think about it is right now, uh, if autonomous vehicles come into existence, which I fully believe that they will do, is that we'll enable a transportation system where a single autonomous uh, automobile uh, would be able to supply the transportation services for 10 to 12 people a day at one-tenth the cost. And so essentially what you would do is shrink the automobile fleet of the United States by 90% and still get all the transportation services that people would want. That's just one example of how combining, if you will, digital technologies, uh, artificial, in uh, artificial intelligence, and in, in this case, uh, electric cars would, would, again, dematerialize a huge proportion of the economy 
and still enable people to do what they want, to get from point A to point B, to go to work, to shop, whatever they want to do. I'm not, I, that's just one possible vision of how that might work out. And you just multiply those kinds of technologies over the coming century, and you're going to see very clearly a very strong dematerialization in the economy with greater and greater value and convenience for, for people living there. But we have to keep innovating and progressing. And I think some people, some people might say, well, you know what, uh, you know, what if that doesn't happen? You know, we've seen, you know, sort of weak productivity growth. They've, they've, they've had, we've had Robert Gordon on this podcast talk about the yeah, end of yeah. economic growth. They'll say, even, listen, uh, all we've, we've sort of mocked all the people who say, you know, we're running out of oil, that we've hit peak oil supply, but hey, maybe we just got lucky uh, with fracking and, you know, that, you know, our luck will run out eventually. And, and, and we'll be stuck with the world of, uh, of shrinking, of shrinking resources and shrinking opportunity. And then at that point, we'll have to retreat. Well, uh, it is possible to do that. Uh, if we, if we do make certain kinds of very bad political and ideological decisions, it got, with all due respect, it is possible for governments to keep people poor. Uh, I'll give you the example of Venezuela. Uh, I don't believe that's the way it's going. We, we show data showing uh, the, the advance of, if you will, capitalistic democracies over autocracies around the globe. And I, it, there's been a, a bit of a stutter in the last 10 years over that, but uh, subsequent to the, uh, the financial crisis. But I fully believe, and, and uh, my colleague, Marion Tupi, believes that this trend is inevitable, that in fact, um, relatively well-governed uh, free economies will, will slowly but surely take over the rest of the globe. And uh, most people will, get, will be able to enjoy both civil and economic freedom by the end of the century. If those institutions, are, those open institutions are maintained, then innovation is, is, is its product. This, this is how progress occurs, is by allowing free markets and, and civil democracies, that is the environment that encourages and rewards innovation. And that is what has been able to help, well, which is basically why the great enrichment occurred, is the spread of those particular kinds of political, social, and economic institutions. So I, I don't think that's going to be the problem. There was this period during the Industrial Revolution called Engels' Pause, we were getting more productive without seemingly getting richer, at least the average worker getting richer through increased wages. I wonder if we're in a similar pause now, and I wonder if that's why support for liberal democratic capitalism seems to be receding a bit. Are you worried that perhaps this inevitability isn't so inevitable? Well, it's not inevitable. I, we don't believe in it, and we don't argue for inevitability. We, what we believe is, is that by providing people with this information, it gives them the data and the that they need to make sure that the trends, the positive trends that have occurred over the last two centuries continue. The, the idea is if you don't know where we are, then you don't know how to fix what's wrong. And so we don't believe in inevitability, but we do think that uh, people who are informed will make the right step, will take the right steps to encourage the kinds of, the continuation of the kinds of trends that have uh, greatly improved the, the state of humanity and the state of the world overall. With regard to productivity, one of the problems is, is that a lot of people are looking at mature technologies and how they uh, uh, get implemented now. But down the road, I mean, right now, if you're looking at things like biotechnology, 
the Human Genome Project, it took 20 years to get where we are now, but things are taking off extremely fast in that regard. If you look at uh, the, the artif uh, artificial intelligence, for example, those, there are huge advances in that. You know, it was just released this new um, language engine called GPT-3, which can uh, unfortunately possibly write my book next time. Uh, th there are all kinds of productivity enhancing technologies that are just now taking off. And I, I think that give it 10 more years and I think the productivity problem that you, you are highlighting and I think uh, Professor Gordon is, is, is highlighting will be, will be found to have been um, a pause and a mistake to claim that this is it from for here on out. We were talking about pessimism, but my greater concern is actually a misplaced sense of nostalgia. Instead of politicians saying, hey, we can and should work to create a better future, they speak like they want to return to the economy right after World War II, or they predict riots in the streets because of automation taking people's jobs. So why do you think this kind of nostalgia seems to have taken root? The, what, what, uh, yes, uh, two questions, two, two responses. The nostalgia will be with us always. <laughs> Uh, one, I forget who it was that said it, but basically nostalgia is essentially someone who's, who is, results in someone who is, who's getting old, who's remembering his misspent youth. And I, I think that a lot of that is what happens here is that people uh, remember the good times and they forget the struggles. And they, it just it, it disappears over time. Again, progress is masking itself. Um, with regard to what are going to be the jobs of the future, uh, if you go back and you look at the job categories from the 1970s, you compare them to the job categories of the, of the year 2020 in the United States, two-thirds of the jobs today did not exist. And nobody could have predicted them. And that is just the way the world works, is, is that, uh, that, that as things become easier and easier to do, as we automate them, then human beings get, if you will, their skills, their knowledge, their brains, their bodies get allocated to higher and higher value services over time. And that I'm very confident is exactly what's gonna be happening over the rest of this century. I mean, I'd like to think that when we look back in a few decades, we'll see that the pandemic led us to see technology and progress as good things that we needed a lot more of. Maybe we'll decide we want some sort of advanced biotechnology sector that could quickly pull this virus apart and create a plug-and-play vaccine right away. But maybe instead of pandemic, will be a hindrance. We won't learn from it. We'll become more risk-averse. We'll flee the cities, and we'll lose all the economic advantages of living in dense urban areas. So which scenario do you think we're going to see? Right. Uh, what... I, let's go back to your vision of, of, of creating a plug-and-play vaccine. The, 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 the truth of the matter is that we're probably on the cusp of that because of what's happened here. As you well know, is it normally takes you know, 15 to 10 years to create a new vaccine. We're gonna, I am very confident we're going to have an effective and safe vaccine for COVID-19 in less than a year. And that's largely because of the, of the biotechnological strength that we've been developing in the background for the last 20 years or so. Think about what if this pandemic had occurred in the 1990s. We still wouldn't know. And that was a fairly advanced period of time. I mean, you, we all remember it, right? The fact is, is that it would have devastated us by this point because we wouldn't have had any of this technology 
to, to merely sequence the, the virus in the first place, and then to go ahead and figure out exactly what proteins we need to produce in order to create the vaccine that's going to be able to help us open, reopen the economy. Uh, it, just if, again, if the pandemic had hit 25 years ago, we'd be in a much worse state than we are now. Now, with respect to the public policies that we've adopted uh, in response to the pandemic, well, we can obviously have a much longer conversation about whether those have been worth it or not. But it's, it is true that some of those policies are going to have long tail consequences for future economic growth, but that's for another time. <laughs> well, let, let me finish with this. You've written, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you've written a lot about the environment and climate change. Uh, yeah. Sort of where are you, you know, now at this point on that issue, and what do you want to see happen uh, policy-wise to deal with climate change, if much of anything? Um, always keeping in mind that uh, whatever the government decides to do could end up being worse than climate change with regard to the economy. Uh, I, I, I have... I started out, let me give my bona fides here. I started out over 30 years ago. I was at the first climate conference actually in uh, Rio de Janeiro. Yes, I'm that old as a journalist covering it then. And I've been following the issue for three decades now. And over time, I initially was highly skeptical that it was going to be a significant problem. But as scientific evidence has accumulated, and I've been reporting on this for 30 years, I've slowly but surely come to the conclusion that it, that if it's unabated, if we don't do something about our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, it's going to become a significant problem for humanity. Uh, again, it's not going to be game over, end of civilization problem, but because we know it's going to be a problem, we should be probably taking some steps uh, in order to slowly but surely uh, reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that we emit through the emit through the burning of fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas. Uh, I do have a favorite technology, and I think that it would be go implementing it would go a long way to solving a lot of the problems of the world, and that would be advanced nuclear power. And there are fabulous new, very safe designs uh, for reactors out there. And the only reason we can't implement them is that we have the world's worst regulatory system with regard to implementing these technologies. My guest today has been Ronald Bailey. Ron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. I hope your readers will run out and buy tons of books. <laughs> thanks. Thanks.